Welcome to Art Fictions, the podcast that explores the art of stories and stories of art, where each host invites a guest to share a piece of fiction, which is then used as a prompt to discuss the ideas that drive their creative practice. I'm artist and producer Gillian Knipe, and today we welcome as host Palumi Odabanjo and her photography meets performance guest Eleonora Agostini. Together they talk about immortality, microcosmos, waitressing, powerlessness, belonging, mothers, self-representation, family frictions, bitter endings, archival images, being deeply uncomfortable, multiple layers of meaning, the complicated teenage years, which obviously we all know about and perhaps like to forget, difficulty bringing closure to relationships, connections between pictures and performance, and not wanting to be the dictator of the image. Okay, let's go. Welcome to Art Fiction's Eleonora Agostini. Hi, hi, Plumi. Thanks for having me here. Thank you so much for joining me. For our discussion today, Eleonora has chosen the novel Boxes by Raymond Carver, published by Kalina Harville, as part of a collection of short stories in Carver's larger book, titled Elephant. Boxes is a story about relationships. In Boxes, Carver shows how difficult it is for the son to cope with bringing closure to his and his mother's relationship, though he still loves her. The mother moves to be near her son. However, she starts packing to move again a while later, not finding the relationship she once had with her son. Through the short story, Boxes, Raymond Carver makes evident the difficulties of bringing closure to a relationship. So Eleonora, could you tell me more about the short story, Boxes, and what brought you to choose in this book to frame our discussion? So Boxes is a short story which was originally published in The New Yorker. The story talks about a relationship between a mother and a son and is narrated in first person by an unnamed narrator that tells the story of his mother moving back to California uh, where the narrator also lives with his partner Jill who is making very little effort to connect with the narrator's mother. The narrator is this man who complains about his mother's behavior who uh, from one reason or another is always moving from place to place She moves so frequently that she leaves her life surrounded by boxes, which uh, she doesn't even bother to unpack. At the beginning of the story, the narrator is talking to the partner, Jill, uh, about one last meal with his mother before she moves. And as the dinner continues, there are moments where the narrator dissociates and starts worrying. And in some ways, it feels powerlessness, as no matter what he does or say, his mother has made up her mind and she's moving back to California and he knows that he will never see her again for some reason that is not really clear uh, to the reader. Then the story ends with the scene of an actual goodbye and then with the mother calling her son from the place where she just moved, where she's unsure if the decision of moving was the right one. He tries to reassure her by telling her he loves her and by calling her dear Uh, which is the affectionate name that his father used to call her when he was talking nice to her. So I guess like the reason why I chose this book, uh, so in general, like I very much enjoy reading Carver as he's uh, a minimalist and he focuses on microcosmos and everyday interactions and, and situations. 
and his stories like are very direct and they are very simple but they often reveal very complex emotions and dynamics and boxes i guess like is one of my favorite ones and i read it for the first time when i was 20 when i was also moving from from place to place and when you asked me to pick up a story yeah i immediately thought of that one i guess it touches some of the themes that i'm concerned with within my work so like the domestic relationships interactions between peoples the mundane and it also speak to me like on a more private level like I have moved a lot myself I live in the UK I'm originally from Italy so I guess like I do empathize with this constant looking for a feeling of belonging somewhere and then I also really enjoy it because it demands the reader to look beyond the way the story is narrated and to question like different position and perspective of the same events or uh, a series of events. So I always find it fascinating when by starting on the surface of things, then you can reveal um, so much more of what's uh, hidden behind. That is the perfect kind of explanation of this story. And I really enjoyed reading this. And I think, I think you gave a really beautiful example with the boxes and of course, that symbol of the box, which I want to also ask you about. But in terms of other kind of recurring symbols, I don't know, I also picked up on things such as the weather and this kind of temperamental changing and uncontrollable thing that, you know, the narrator very much recognises. And things such as, I believe there's an old card table which is going to be thrown out, which was his mother's, and that he says, no, I'll, I'll hold on to it. So this idea of holding on to things as well, there were there were quite a few different symbols I found. How do you kind of read these various symbols or any others that you may have picked up on? Yeah, I definitely agree with the fact that there are so many like symbolic meanings within this, uh, this short story and then like, a lot of the symbolic meanings, they reflect on the way the narrator feels towards his mother and like the situation that he's living, but also reflects on the mother's situation. So the boxes, for example, one can wonder like what's inside those boxes and why is it difficult to unpack? And then, you know, like in real meaning, like the mother wants to have that special mother-son relationship, but she feels that uh, her son is not giving her enough attention and spending enough time with her. So in a way, like it's this desperate gesture of of leaving, like probably what is the most important relationship for her. And then like, yeah, another symbol that identified like at the end of the story, uh, the mother is wearing a white outfit and the white, you know, like it's often associated with peace, with heaven, if we see it from a religious perspective. And then, you know, like she's, she's departing with this car, it's usually something that connects people together, but then the author like transform it into a device of these connections because the car is used to actually separate these two figures and, and these two relationships. Yeah. That's really interesting with the the white. I think you're right. I think that is an incredibly important symbol. And for me, it kind of, I guess in ways overlaps with this kind of idea of the unreliable narrator who I'm not necessarily saying that the narrator is that but there has to be some kind of question I think of reliability in the sense that we of course don't know his name he is the narrator we don't know his mother's name I guess as well it is his mother so he may not call her by her first name ever but we know Jill's name and the son 
not really knowing what his mother wants and feeling that, for example, with her leaving at the end, he has absolutely no choice and no say in the matter. When in reality, I'm pretty sure his mother does say, like, you never asked me to stay. I feel unwanted in this home, essentially. So she is speaking. He's just not listening, it feels like. And I guess for you as a reader, where does your, I guess, trust in this narration sit? I'm quite curious. In terms of trust, like I do trust the narrator in terms of like what he feels, even if he's the one like telling the story, uh, which means like it's from his perspective, it's still clear that he's missing so many things. And I think like another interesting point is that we become aware as readers of this association between her mother moving away and her mother's death through a decision that the narrator takes. So the mother has never said the words of, I don't want to see you again. But from the narrator's perspective, it seems like he's the one that made the decision because she moved to another state. I completely agree. And there's a line which really stuck out to me, which I've noted here. My mother didn't have anything going on in her life. And this was said quite early, I think, in the story. And just that sentence in itself to assume (laughs) that, you know, one, his mother's life may only exist in these boxes and these these forms of like movement from place to place. It seems that's potentially one of the only lenses that he sees his mother through and kind of recognising that his father called his mother dear and then near the end of the story calling his mother by this kind of time of endearment. It's just, yeah, it really has to be thinking about the different lenses that the son actually sees his mother through. Uh, yeah, it's really interesting, like in a way that the way the story is told, um, it looks like the mother only exists in relation to other men. So in this case, she exists in relation to the son. And then when he speaks about the life of his mother, he always like refers to a time where she was moving with her husband. And after the husband died and she kept moving, so in a way like, her behaviors and her actions are narrated through um, these images of of men next to her. And that's very, very evident, I think. I mean, you can say the same about this person, Jill. I mean, I guess I'm still thinking about Jill's character because at points she kind of expresses to the mother, like, look at what you're doing to your son. He can't sleep at night. He's only thinking about you. He's stressed and... I don't think I've read much about Jill as a person, who she actually is, aside from being the narrator's wife. Yeah, and it's true. The only conversation that she has with the mother is related to her son. We don't know much about Jill. We know that she doesn't really get along with the mother, but we don't really understand why is that. And it seems that the only reason why she she doesn't get along with her is because of him because of some sort of preoccupation that she has towards her partner. No, absolutely. I also wanted to ask you then about this, this idea of closure, I guess, and this closure that it seems the narrator is searching for, or maybe not searching for, or the closure that he assumes the mother is potentially searching for. 
But this question of closure and how we as people find closure and should we even be searching for closure all the time? It's it's a it's a really interesting word to me. And yeah, I just wondered how, yeah, how do you kind of relate to this word closure, this idea of closure? Mm, well, okay, so with, with closure, like I kind of associate some sort of ending, like it, it's something definitive in relation to the story when the narrator thinks that that's going to be the last time that he sees his mother, then in a way like that's some sort of closure. But at the same time, as the story like is about to end, we go back to it because the mother is still calling the son and she's like complaining about this new place with probably like the hope that he would say something to reassure her. And I think like that's finally the moment where he understands what he has to say and how he has to behave. Like he's actually listening to her. Yeah, he starts calling her dear, which is the name that for him is reassuring because the, the father was calling her dear when when he uh, was talking nice to her. In terms to like my relationship to closure, I'm really bad with closure. I find it really difficult, both in terms of like my personal life and my works. Uh, in fact, like even my project, like I tend to keep open because I always believe in transformation. And for me, like closure, it, it's something so definitive that in a way, like it goes a bit against the way I think about things, which um, sometimes also can make things a bit unhealthy. <laughs> I'm exactly the same, honestly. Whenever I say yes, an ongoing project, accept that, or cope with the fact I just don't know how to finish things at all. Um, but it's, it's interesting as well, picking up on that word of dear. And the word dear for me is this kind of like distance, but close mm. word. So, and I wanted to ask you as well, and you just kind of touched on this ending and I love asking people just how they interpret the ending of things. So I wanted to ask you, how do you interpret the ending of this book? Yeah, I guess like, I, I agree when you say like dear is something that it, it's in between like warm and cold, because it, it does create like some sort of distance, which makes you think about the relationship that these two people have, both in terms of like mother and son and mother and husband. But at the same time, yeah, this ending, like to go back to your question, it's a bitter ending which is something that I find in, in many of Carver's stories, uh, because, yeah, like you're always stuck in this space. Like there, there are so many different readings like to these endings, like because on one side, like he has finally listened and he's trying to reassure her. And then on the other side, one would think, oh, you're using like the word dear. And so you're creating even more distance. And then like the last sentence of the story is what's there to tell? The people over there embrace for a minute and then they go inside the house together. They leave the light burning. Then they remember and it goes out. And so four lines like this is evidently talking about the old story of them like saying goodbye in front of the car. And then that this light goes out. And so like the dark comes. It's a really interesting ending. It's exactly what you said and what we kind of touched on. Perspective this idea of this narrator then observing two people embrace 
you know, and even the use of that word embracing, it implies so much warmth, so much love, so much care, so much closeness. And then there's, of course, the light. And I feel like people love the symbol of the light <laughs> in general. But this this idea of the light kind of going out at the end, it's quite ambiguous. You're right. The story, yes, is about closure, but that ending very much, it's anything but closure for both the reader and the narrator and the mm-hmm. mother. And I just, yeah, it was, it was a beautiful ending. Yeah. Thank you so much for speaking with me about this incredible story. I will then go on to your work. And actually as well, I will say this. So it's really interesting that my last podcast recording with the incredible Olukemi Lejadu, although both of your kind of art practices touch on these ideas of lineage, mothers, family, retelling, you know, familial stories and fragments, But it was by complete coincidence that you both chose books in which there's a first person narrator who's a man. (laughs) Um, He is quite a questionable narrator and so much about this man's character and the way his character unravels within the story is very much about his relationship with his mother. So I think that's just a really beautiful similarity, (laughs) Um, which is so great and there may be similarities within your artworks as well. Um, yes. So Eleonora Agostini is an Italian artist based in London. She received her BA from Instituto Europeo di Design in Milan in 2013 and her MA from the Royal College of Art in London in 2018. So Eleonora's practice shifts between photography, moving image, performance and sculpture, exploring and analysing the difficulties of how human experience is constructed. Her research is strongly connected with the experience of our surroundings, and she is interested in finding a possible fracture within our socially constructed rules and the spaces we inhabit. Eleonora refers to the everyday as a space full of potential and possibilities for quests, incorporating ordinary objects and activities within her images to express and navigate its different layers and meanings. And I also want to note at this time of us speaking, I'm currently writing an essay um, on Eleonora's incredible body of work, A Study on Waitressing, as Eleonora was very recently announced as one of the 20 artists, I believe, selected for Foam Talent 2024. So congrats. That's incredible. (laughs) Thank you, Palumi. I'm very excited about it. I can't wait to read your essay. Yay. I mean, (laughs) I hope you like the essay. (laughs) I'm going to love it. Yay. And it's great that we're having this conversation right before it's due. So I actually wanted to kick off this conversation by asking you about the series A Study on Waitressing. It's a series that I'm currently very obsessed with and how it began. Yes. So um, A Study on Waitressing is a body of work that I started in 2020. Uh, I'm actually working on finalizing it by next year. A study on waitressing looks at the phenomena of self-representation by questioning the fictionalized image of the waitressing woman through the metaphor of theater and the three dimensions that define it, uh, which are the stage, the backstage, and the performative, uh, where each work responds to notions around photography, visibility, performativity, and labor in relation to gender. It's investigated through the figure of my mother, during her job as a waitress, 
And so like her body and her face and her figure in general is used within this work as a vehicle to address concerns on the visible and the hidden in relation to private and, and public behaviors. So the work uh, started with the first collage, uh, which is the one where you can see the naked body of my mother. Uh, I took those pictures in 2018 of her reenacting uh, postures, movements and gestures that she does while she uh, she's working as a waitress. And I didn't know what I wanted to do with them. And so in 2020, just before the lockdown, uh, I was approached by Tom Lovelace, who at the time was uh, curating this exhibition at Borough Road Gallery called With Monochrome Eyes. Uh, I was invited to, to this exhibition and that was the first piece that started the body of work. I find it so interesting that you began this series with the images that you shot because as you described, there are so many different approaches to images and photography within the series. You have, of course, video work, you have text, you have um, collaged works, you have works which are very much zoomed in, you have cropped works, you have archival works. And I guess this might just be me, but there's always that assumption that projects begin with the archival. And from there, you kind of then go on to in your case, shoot your own work. But I find it so interesting that it began in 2018. And then the archival was actually used, I guess, as a way to potentially anchor the work and like come back to the work. And kind of leading from our conversation about um, boxes, this relationship with your mother and this relationship of working with your mother as, you know, quote unquote subject. And also this, this relationship with your mother's archival images and her collection of images um so i started working with my mother around 2010 when i started my ba so i've been photographing her for like 13 years now well actually i have to say that both of my work kind of emerge from a friction in in a relationship with my parents so in the first like a blurry aftertaste, like it, it was born from from a friction that I was experiencing or I experienced. Weirdly enough, it was a similar situation to the lockdown. So I moved back home for three months. So all of a sudden, after 10 years of living somewhere else, like I'm I'm again like in my parents' house with my old memories and dealing with like this relationship that's somehow evolved but at the same time like stay the same uh, and so I was questioning a lot like these dynamics that existed within the family bubble and the functionality of my house so that's how a blurry aftertaste began and then in terms of a study on waitressing again like it it was a friction in my relationship between me and my mother which was like this job as as a waitress and the fact that like I could see so many behaviors that she uses in that public space but I could see them in her private sphere so I in a sense like it was really difficult for me to understand where the line was between uh, the performance and the reality and I guess like we have a really good relationship now it was quite complicated when I was a teenager as many teenagers experience um, but yeah I think it's important for me to say that a lot of my work has originated from from frictions 
and that's 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 very interesting actually and I'm also quite interested in this idea of authorship and what may or may not happen to somebody else's archive when they're reused or they're kind of repositioned I guess through artwork so I guess like we as a family we don't consider the archival like to be of one person like sometimes I know that I say like my mother's archive because it's many pictures of her but at the same time it's more like of a family archive and those images are there for the family to refer to and then like of course like because it's it's working with my mother as we've been talking through things and we've been commenting on images that I've taken and images that I'm thinking of So I guess like in the piece that you're referring to, which is called How to Stand in Front of the Camera and How to Stand in Front of the Client, which is like the series of of legs. It started by analyzing the archival images from the family archive in which she was portrayed in the workplace. And then I realized that the same postures were present in, in photos and images on vacation and with friends. So then I started asking myself, uh, yeah, where do this line between this backstage and the stage start to blend? And then like the dimension of theater starts to come into play. Uh, and so I think for me, like the, the theater metaphor was really important to give me structure within this body of work. That is incredibly interesting to hear. I have so many questions from that, but firstly this this place of the theater that you mentioned and this you know this stage that you kind of present the work within it's interesting that you kind of speak of your home so it's like this theatrical setting exists not theatrical setting sorry but this kind of setting of the theater this kind of staging exists both in your kind of method of working and your contextualizing of the series and I very much relate to what you said about the complicated relationship with your mother as a teenager. (laughs) Um, I don't think I know anyone that, actually, no, that's not true. I know people that have great relationships with their mothers, you know, lifelong, incredible relationships. Similarly, I guess I could speak from my perspective as kind of my research and me working with my mother's kind of collection of images And despite this kind of rocky relationship I had in my teenage years, me in my early 20s is a way of, I guess, kind of tracing my own lineage and I guess my own memory through my mother's images. And you said, I guess, the series, you're planning on ending it next year. Why is that? Why next year? And how do you kind of visualise the end? That's the only time that I can visualise an end because... (laughs) I am working towards a performance, but then some of the elements within this work, I feel they cannot be resolved with photography or moving image because I'm talking about theater again and I'm I'm talking about the performative and the backstage. There is a piece of this work which I haven't mentioned, which is text. So for the text, they're called notes for my clients. And I've asked my mother to use the same materials that she uses when she takes order. And instead of writing down the orders, then I've asked her to write down what she thinks while she works and the things that she would say to the client, but she's not allowed to do it. So both the text and the moving image piece kind of reveal that dimension that is not completely dealt with. 
at the present moment. And I think like performance is is a way to bring that into the conversation because I, I'm planning to work with actors as well. I'm envisioning something uh, that is, I don't even know if I should talk about it because like, I, you know, I haven't made it, but whatever I am. So I would do talk it. about it, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm kind of envisioning it as as these like awkward moments. And I want the public like to feel that awkwardness and that strangeness of dealing with with a figure that is supposed to behave in a specific way. But like what happens where that inner monologue kind of like takes part of that performance how are we then able to understand what is directed to us and what is coming from the behind the scene yeah and and the reason why there is a specific deadline is because I'm working with the grants that I've got given this year so I made a proposal of like an eight-month project and I kind of want to stay within that deadline this is just me kind of teasing I guess but do you think that you may come back to the series? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> I feel I feel like, you know, I'm very convinced about disclosure of this project, but then like I also know myself and probably like I will never be satisfied and I will always go back to it. I hope so. I also wanted to ask you then about well performance in the work it's of course present in a study on waitressing, but also in your series Laying with Strangers, the kind of performative, you know, layer of it. And I wanted to ask you about that series and the way that performance is kind of activated through the photography. Yeah. So I think like for me, like in a way, performance was always something that I used within my practice in terms of like staging something. I think it is very much related to the way I think in general. I'm quite good at asking myself, like, why, 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 until I exhaust myself. So I always have to go back to things to, like, understand them. So in a way, for me, staging and reenacting, like, some sort of moment or a memory, on one side, it gives me, like, more control over the situation. Although it's staged, like I do have to accept a level of of serendipity happening in front of me because I can control, you know, the frame and I can give guidelines. But then at the same time, I don't want to be a dictator of the image, you know. So when when I make the work with my parents, for example, when when we were doing these performative games, I would suggest an activity like that was, for example, a massage but I wasn't in charge of how my mom would massage my dad. Yeah, I guess like restaging for me, like gives me that analytical space that I like to have because it opens a moment of of thinking before the image because you have to plan it and you have to uh, kind of know what you're going to do. And then after the image, because it forces me to think of why did I come up with that idea? Why was that urgent, you know? And then like in terms of, so Lay Strangers was a commission uh, that I had last year. And this magazine approached me and they asked me to make a body of work around parks. I live in Peckham and I go quite often to Peckham Rye. And then I had this idea since a long time that I wanted to like try to include myself within the work and, and work with strangers. And then I started thinking, okay, I want to make it challenging. So I took it as an opportunity to actually test something that I was 
deeply uncomfortable with, which was first being in front of the camera and then second, taking a picture of myself with someone that I didn't know and I never met before. So I was going around the park with my tripod and my camera and then I was acting like a, I think like a bit of a creepy observer. So I wanted to look at the scene before I made a decision of of what person I wanted to interact with. So I was like kind of hiding <laughs> in the bushes and, you know, stay there for a little bit and like see, if, like look safe as well, because, you know, as a woman like approaching strangers, like I, I don't know, you know, it can go very well, it can go very wrong. So I would go there and I would say, hey, I'm working on these things. Would you mind taking a picture with me? And I would join them to whatever activity they were doing. Um, so some of them were sunbathing. Then a person was reading a book. Another person was exercising. And I guess like I was interested in this idea of like performing intimacy and to explore as well, like that vulnerable space that gets created when you approach someone that you don't know. And when you ask them like to try and take a picture like that. There's one image that I really, really love in the series. It looks like an aerobics <laughs> kind of session and it's wonderful. And kind of just hearing about the way in which you approached people. And then it was very much, you know, a relationship was formed and it was very much collaborative. That's really beautiful. And with that, I'm actually quite interested did you ever find yourself maybe thinking, oh, I feel more comfortable approaching like women or like people who are middle aged? Was there a certain demographic that you felt a bit more comfortable approaching as being a female photographer or was it like anyone? No, definitely. I was more comfortable with approaching women and I was very uncomfortable with approaching men, probably because like the situation like again like I was approaching people alone and they were often quite hidden in places within the park but I kind of like wanted to put myself in that strange situation and then again like you know when when I photograph myself with a man that I don't know that is you know laying in the park and do whatever he's doing I kind of want to push away like that that fear of of approaching it and then like when I sit down, like I am, I am the one in, in charge of the situation and it keeps coming back to my work. Like there is some sort of like power dynamics at play that, yeah. And I think like, if you look at the images, like there are a few where you could say that I'm very uncomfortable. Like there is one where I'm uh, sitting next to um, a man who was sunbathing and, and he doesn't have his top on. And all of a sudden, like we're sitting super close to each other that our skin is touching and you can see that I'm very rigid next to him. And it's interesting with that image. I'm just looking at it now. The shadow, you know, you kind of saying that and this very kind of sweeping shadow that lies over your figure. That's a very kind of interesting context, knowing your degree of comfort in that picture. It's also nice hearing that this series came from a commission that was about parks and you kind of reinterpreted it into yes your own environment but also your very particular relationship with that kind of green space at that time and I also did want to ask you then I think you've kind of touched upon it already but with these different 
you know, layers of your work, performance, reenactment, staging, like inserting the self in the image. With the camera, of course, there is always going to be an element of kind of documenting. And you just said something, actually, which I thought was such a wonderful line, and I'm going to find it. Oh, that you don't want to be the dictator of the image. I mean, I could speak about that for so long, but I think that very much really combats this idea, well, these ideas around ownership of images and this very kind of, in my opinion, very kind of masculinist, you know, European, like, ownership. So I wanted to ask you, I mean, over the years as a photographer, has your relationship to documenting and photographing in general, has that changed in any way? Um, does it change with your different projects? Yeah. Yeah, I guess I guess the answer is yes. I mean, there are there are things that are the pillars of my work, and the, there are things that keep recurring within the different project, like this idea of of staging, like the idea of working with archive. Because even if I'm only showing it on a stadium waitressing, like the archive played quite an important role on a blurry aftertaste as well as a research material, though. But yeah, like the way the way I work is that I start from an idea uh, which often comes from a list of like a shooting list of things that I want to make and I don't have the answers for or or it can come like from, as I said, like a feeling of frustration over something very specific. And then from that, I start the work and then the more I keep going into making, like the more I'm able to break through the concepts and so it's like it's like every image informed the next in a way so i use i use the image both as as a research point but also i'm quite interested in in showing the process as well so in in a blurry aftertaste i think that's very visible even the, the collages they're made from discarded materials from the dark room and for me like it was an analogy to to talk about like these this idea of, of the backstage that keeps recurring within the work. And it was for me like conceptual strategy to make it visible and to like, you know, kind of display like the darkroom work of, of making these pictures. And, and so like the craft and the labor that then can connect uh, to the idea of, of the waitress and what we decide to show and what we decide to hide. I did not know that they were discarded materials from the darkroom. So, yeah. Yeah. And the same process, like I, yeah, I use it for the second collages about the feet called the steps. And I follow, yeah, I follow the same strategies and I use various versions of the same image to emphasize the different perspectives and meanings that image can assume. And then another thing that was really important within my work, it's repetition. So repetition and, and the grids, actually. Repetition is, is a strategy that I use quite a lot. To, to talk about, in this case, of the body, of the repetition of behaviors and the repetition of, of certain situation and this kind of like script that this woman has to follow uh, in order to perform her job properly. And I say properly, like under marks. And then the images in the feed collage, they have been arranged and assembled in such a way to suggest a journey and a space like in which the body moves and if you go close to that collage then you see like all these 
marks and it shows like it's an old body and it has like marks of age and marks of uh, labor yeah that context is incredibly helpful thank you so much so with your work when it's been exhibited how have different people reacted to the work how the strangers who you shot do you know if they ever were able to see the work so I guess like that's a difficult question to ask because I don't really know how people reacted to my work like the first time that this work was exhibited was in Turin and then I was trying to grasp like people's reaction and some of them were quite clear like some people were laughing at the work as they found like some aspects of it that were funny or awkward and I'm specifically referring to the text because the texts are quite bold compared to the rest of the work Uh, and then in terms of physicality as well I like to exhibit this work in a way where the viewer is not passive in front of the work so I try to think about strategies that can bring into the space like the concept of the performance and the body and what's hidden and what's shown Um, and so for example um, the how to stand in front of the camera and how to stand in front of the client piece the audience was kind of invited to go close to the work and actually like project themselves into these postures and then in terms of other strategies that I use uh, the texts were hidden in the gallery space as they were talking about like a, a more private dimension. And then the video of my mother, uh, which is called Welcome Sir, uh, it was exhibited uh, in front of the door to restage that first encounter that a client has when he walks into a restaurant. Yeah, and to go back to the question, like how have people reacted to my work? Like, I guess it's something that is really hard to know because when you have an exhibition like people they congratulate and they are generally very nice and then it's rare like to have like a um, like a conversation afterwards about it (laughs) what what does that say you know (laughs) and also type of that how has your mother reacted to the work in terms of of my mother while we do the images she's fine with it like we talk through the images and we go to the studio or wherever we're shooting and we just get on with the work but then like in in that specific situation in Turin she came to the opening and that was the first time that she saw all these images of herself like exhibited in one space so she got in and all of a sudden she was surrounded by memories from a life images that are new to her and I guess like she felt a bit embarrassed to see like all of these images of herself because she's a shy person so it was not super easy and like she it was during lockdown she was wearing a mask and then she put a hoodie on because she didn't want anyone to recognize her but that was the first experience that she had but I guess like it can be linked to the experience of the moment, which might have been completely different from the resulting image. So like probably while they were making this work, like, you know, she was thinking about something or like she was experiencing something that, that she didn't recognize within that those specific images. And then consequently, like you kind of detach from it and look at yourself like with the eyes of others, which is funny to think about because, you know, I haven't thought about how 
this experience of, of my mother looking at the image and seeing the work was so very much connected to the concept of the work and like this gaze of, of others and how we dissociate from it. And it's really interesting to think about that potential reflective dissociation that we may have with images kind of of our quote-unquote past selves. I wonder if when we're older, you know, <laughs> we'll look back at some of our images and just think, God, who is that? And it must be so interesting for your mother to see that play out in an exhibition space, in this theatre, essentially. And, you know, good on her. <laughs> Reflecting on them, that's both her. I'm wondering if she thinks the same. Good for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's a collaboration in so many ways. But I was just thinking... Um, what you kind of said about experience in the moment and, you know, detachment and <clears throat> what we kind of recognise of certain things, whether it's objects or people, and just thinking back to the book and the short story and this narrator and his, you know, quite clear detachment with his mother, different, you know, relationships, you and your mother and this narrator and his father, but just thinking about the different ways that people may dissociate and and how and what those different kind of tactics are to presenting that. That's something that's really on my mind. And I will end the conversation there about the work. So thank you so much, Eleonora. This has been an incredible conversation. And I just wanted to close by asking you, are there any artists or exhibitions, past or present, which have particularly inspired you? Yeah, so... I mean, like whenever like people ask me this question, I always go back to the same work, which is Ragnar Kjartsson. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it properly. Specifically, two exhibitions that were both in 2016. Uh, one was at Barbican and one was in Paris at Palais de Tokyo. And I guess like I didn't really know his work before starting my MA. And for me, like, I think it's a really important work because it kind of like made me switch my perspective on how I make work and like how I deal with the relationship that surround me and the objects that, that surround me. And I think like unconsciously kind of like push my photography more towards a performative aspect that it had before. That is, that is a great answer. And also, what is on your bookshelf? And this could be fiction, nonfiction. It could also be an article. It could be anything, an essay. What is on your bookshelf? Okay, so I have a mix of photo books, of course. Then I have essays on photography, art, uh, gender, looking. Then I have some fictions, like I have John Cheever, I have Carver. Thank you. That is very useful. And you know what? Admittedly, I have not been able to sit down and read fictional work in so long because I'm so used to reading theory. Essays, yeah. So thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, I am the same. Yeah, honestly, it's, it's too much. I'm tempted one day to just write like a piece of fiction. Dissociate a bit, why not? Do it for fun, write a I piece of so- fiction. Oh my God, I wonder how they'll feel about that in two days. Yeah. <laughs> but I, my final question to you then is, where can we see your work coming up? Well, you said it at the beginning, actually. It was selected for From Talent 2024-2025. Uh, 
So it will be published uh, on the magazine in February and then the exhibition at FOAM will also happen in February. And I cannot wait. Thank you so much, Eleonora. This has been an absolutely incredible conversation. And it's been, yeah, so wonderful to learn about your work through your own voice, I think. So thank you so much for being so generous. Um, oh, thank you so much, Falumi, for having me. It was a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you. And thanks to the listeners. And again, thank you, Eleonora, for being on Art Fictions. Goodbye. Goodbye. That's a load of thanks from Palumi, so I guess I don't need to say much more. This is the penultimate episode for 2023 as we hurtle towards the closing of one year and the opening of the next. Personally, I'm quite excited about what's coming up and I hope there is indeed hope amongst our valued listeners. An extra huge thanks to those who have contributed to the production of this program via patreon.com slash artfictionspodcast. Credits for this abridged podcast are Griffin Knight for the music and Joanna Quinn of Beryl Productions who devised our jolly logo. Happy listening, reading, seeing and making. Till next time. <laughs> Sorry. Don't worry. I, lost, I lost where I was going. I'm going to start again. Wait. <laughs> yeah, Wait. you know, like I was talking about my work and then all of a sudden I started thinking about my students' work. Oh, no. <laughs> and that's, that's where I got lost. And that's my whole day of tutorials, like, haunting oh, no. me. Um, oh no! I mean, I hope if they were good thoughts about the students' yes. work. Um, but no, you can start again. I had a section where I was talking about those materials in a very good way, and I was really proud of me. 